lesson tonight is Christ is the true high priest. Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat or something also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he, speaking of Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these lovely verses. For the next few moments as we look into this chapter, speak to all of our hearts, help us to see things about your sacrifice in a way that we have not seen them before. Or at the same time, God, just help us to reiterate, bring to remembrance something that we have not thought about here lately. We love you and we appreciate all the good things you've done for each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews tells us about the new covenant, how it is so much better than the old covenant. It's one of those books that if you ever sit down and just begin to read it, you'll find out that the New Testament is much better than the Old Testament. That Christianity has taken the place of Jewish ritual and liturgy. And the emphasis in the New Testament is not on ritual. It's never about how you dress. It's not about incense. It's not about candles as it was in the Old Testament. But now the interest is a person to confine your love and your adoration and your worship for a person. And that person is Christ. We have to this point looked at how Christ is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua how that he's even better than Melchizedek, and he comes after the order of Melchizedek, a, a new kind of priest doing something different. We concluded with chapter 7, demonstrating that the Lord is not like priests who offer up sacrifices every day, but according to chapter 7, verse 27, he offered up himself one time. Now, you have to consider from the, the, the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible teaches that they were covered in animal skins. That's how the Lord clothed their nakedness and took away their shame. Because immediately they felt bad when they realized they were just totally exposed. And it was sin that opened their eyes to that. And the covering of the skins becomes the type of the kinds of sacrifices that are going to be needed throughout the rest of Scripture. It's going to deal with the whole sin issue. So God required the sacrifice of animals. And you remember in Genesis it said in, in the days of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So animals were sacrificed. Well, why animals? Well, because people weren't pure enough, clean enough, holy enough. Our blood was defiled. We're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. But animals don't know any sin. They don't have a conscience like we have. They don't have a soul like we have. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to redeem animal creatures. He came to redeem people. So the closest that the Lord could provide in perfection 
in this aspect of redemption, the offering and shedding of blood, was that of animals. The animal killed somebody just operating by instinct. He doesn't know anything else other than that. So one animal after another had to be sacrificed. And if you consider from, from Seth to Moses, it's a lot of years, a lot of animals that had to die. From the time Moses received the law from the Lord, that's a, a 1,500 period from Moses to Christ, six days a week, two offerings a day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., lambs had to be offered or turtle doves or bullocks or goats or cows, however they were going to do it with the respective sacrifices. Solomon, at one dedication of the temple, offered more than 200,000 animals and sacrifices to God. So a lot of blood was shed for Israel's sins. Every single day this was taking place. And I'm sure they, they took for granted the blood of the animals and trampled it and in the sense that they disregarded it. They lived the way they wanted to. They, they uh, worshipped idols. They ignored the word of God. They didn't keep the law. But nevertheless, the, the priests were offering up these sacrifices as they were supposed to. And this is why when Jesus comes, the Bible describes him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he becomes the, the type of pure animal without spot, blemish, or wrinkle who is sacrificed once and for all for all of our sins. So praise the Lord. None of us men have to go to Israel three times a year. And none of us have to offer up sacrifices for the sins of our family. It's a beautiful thing to know. So in chapter 8, then in verse 1, he said, here's the main point. This is the chief thing we're trying to illustrate here, that we have the kind of high priest who's at the right hand of the throne of God. So this gives us a location for our Savior. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Scripture teaches he spent 40 days here talking to his disciples about things concerning the kingdom of God. But it tells us right here when he ascended and went to heaven, he went to the right hand of the Father. So we're not trying to figure out where Jesus is. We know where he is. He's at the right hand of the Father. Now, the Mormons will tell you that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he came to America and that he preached to the people who were the predecessors of the Native American Indians. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. There's certainly nothing in history that teaches that, but that's certainly in the belief of the Mormons. The Hindus teach that Jesus, because remember the Hindus have over a million gods, and they accept Jesus as one of them. They say that when Jesus was raised from the dead, they, they, they say that he came over there to India and preached. And there is a sect of Muslims called the Ahmadians who believe that also. So it's important to know that these are things that we don't believe, and we're certainly not going to teach them as though they're truth. Scripture says he was raised from the dead. After 40 days, he ascended to heaven, and it's from there he's going to one day return, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So our heavenly Father and our Savior are up above in heaven. The ascension of Christ is important as a doctrine for Christian. Because if the ascension of Christ is true, that means he's now the judge. See, when Jesus was here, he was the meek and lowly lamb. But when he returns, he'll be a judge. And that's the aspect of Christ's nature that people don't like today. They don't like the idea that I'm actually going to be judged for how I live. But that's what the scripture teaches. He is a high priest, and he's at the right hand of the Father. 
Well, notice verse 2. It speaks about the sanctuary, the true tabernacle that hands or man did not make. We know there is a temple or tabernacle that is portrayed in heaven because the book of Revelation talks about it. Revelation talks about the altar of incense where the incense is poured out as the prayers of the saints. It talks about the, the uh, angels coming forth out of the, uh, the, the temple and they're going to have trumpets and they're going to blow them and all of these kinds of things. So the, the image of the tabernacle on earth essentially mirrored what was already a reality in the spirit realm in heaven. And this is why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, say, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God has a, a desire, a wish, and a will that is manifested in heaven that he also wants manifested here on earth. How does that occur? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit that dwells in the believer, that dwells in the Christian's heart, he communicates to us the minds and the thoughts of God. And, and those minds and the, the, those thoughts, I should say, are so powerful that, that it can change how we live. And it doesn't take long for God to get a word to you or to me. He can talk to you in a dream. He can speak to you through the scripture. Or the Spirit of God can whisper to your heart. Years ago in uh, the space program, and it may still be somewhat the same today. If you've got someone up there on the uh, space station around the moon, or let's take, for instance, the uh, contraption that they sent to Mars, that thing that was rolling around and all that kind of stuff, when they wanted to send messages to that thing, sometimes uh, they'd send the message from Florida, and then it'd go up there in space, and sometimes it takes four or five minutes for the message to get to the astronauts in space or to the little mechanical contraption that they have up there. But if God speaks, it happens like that. Immediate and it's instant. His will is communicated. And the mind of God is so important that if his mind is placed in your head, you can do the things that God wants you to do here on the earth. Now, there, there was a time I could sit down at a piano and, and I could play a few songs here and there, some hymns and some, some, uh, some contemporary choruses and things like that. But you forget these things if you don't continue to do that. Well, the, the, the ability is not just in the fingers because I've, I've got long fingers and, and, and my hands can go back and forth up and down the, the keys, but I can't play it uh, the way somebody like Isla could or maybe like Carol or somebody. I just can't sit down and just beat out songs like, like, like some folks can't. However... If, if you could take Carol's mind and put it in my head, I could play the way she plays. You see. And, and that's the thing about Christianity. If, if we can think the thoughts of God and, and permit God to live in us and through us as he desires, we can do the things that, that Christ did. We can love the way he loved. We can pray for people the way he ministered to people. So as a minister, the true priest of a true tabernacle that's not made by hands, he then goes on, and Paul illustrates in verse 3, he says, all of these human priests are ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Well, somebody appointed them to this job, and they did the job. Hopefully, they did it in a very happy fashion. And so it says it's, a, it's of necessity that Christ himself have something to offer. If all the earthly priests had to offer animal sacrifices, if Jesus is going to be the true priest, he had to have something to offer. What did he offer? Himself. He became the mediator between God and men. 
But notice this, this whole thing, this sacrifice of himself. We were having a, a good extensive discussion on this just the other night. And uh, one of the people in the Bible study was, was former Catholic. And, and she was telling us about how she was raised in, uh, overseas in another country. And, and how the light came to her to help her to see that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. And that she didn't need to go and confess to anybody, you know. And she was explaining how as a kid uh, overseas, she'd go into the cemetery. And in the Catholic cemeteries over there, they'd have little, uh, I want to say bottles or some kind of deals with holy water on them. And then it, you, you'd, you'd take the, a brush or something, you'd brush that on the headstones or something like that as a, maybe as a means to helping get people out of purgatory or something like that. But, but she was just fascinated by that. And then she said she got older and, and things started clicking. The, the, the idea that she had to sit and confess all of her uh, sins to somebody through a curtain, you know. And so I was kind of teasing. I said, well, I said, knowing you, I said, probably the lay people were standing at the door of the Catholic Church. And when they saw you coming, they yelled at the priest and said, here she comes again. It's going to be a long one, you know. So i just giving her a hard time about that. But I think it was her mom or somebody. Her mom sat down in that booth to do her confession. Now, this was, this was interesting. The, the, the Catholic priest said to her, you know, you come in here and you go through all this every week. You don't need to do this. Just go home and confess your sins to God. Why are you telling me? He's the only one that can help you. Now, you don't have a whole lot of priests to say that, you see. But, but that started the turn leading her out. You see, the light start coming on. When we think of what Christ offered for us, he offered himself. Now, keep your finger here. Let's go to Leviticus 16. I want to show you something else. Leviticus 16. That is your third book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 16. This is the chapter that talks about the Day of Atonement. I want us to look at verse 7 and look at the scapegoat, the escape goat. Leviticus 16, verse 7. And he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So two goats, and, all, and each of them have their, own, have their own particular functions, but each of the functions is for redemption and for the dealing sin, treating of sin. The first one, the lot that comes upon him that says, you're going to be offered to the Lord, that's the one they take to the altar and they, they, they put up on the fire and the, the, end, the, the aroma goes up in the, the nostrils of God. The smoke ascends into the heavens and the Lord is pleased with that. The one that is allowed to live is the one that the priest puts his hands on and confers all the sins of Israel upon the goat by the laying on of hands 
and then he turns the goat loose and sends him out into the wilderness, and he's called the scapegoat because the sins of Israel are fleeing away. Now, the beauty of that is that the goat is either going to have to die by natural death or by means of a predator. But however it happens, the further that the goat goes into the wilderness, the further the sins of Israel go away. And this is why the scripture says of our Savior, he was the Lamb of God that offered himself, took upon himself our sins, the penalty of our sins. But later on in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus died outside the gate. That is to say, he became our scapegoat. He was taken outside of the city. He was placed on the cross, and there he died so that we can all say that our sins have been taken away. So when you repent and you ask God to forgive you, even though the devil may try to make you feel bad through condemnation, you need to understand your sins have been taken away, taken away. You don't have to worry about them anymore. They're not going to show up on the day of judgment because Jesus has taken them away. That's important for a Christian to know. So verse 4 then says, if Jesus were on the earth, then he would have, going back to Hebrews 8, if Jesus were on the earth, I mean, he wouldn't need to be a priest. They already have earthly priests offering gifts. But verse 5, it says that they serve only as an example and a shadow of heavenly things. See, Moses was admonished, make the tabernacle according to the pattern God has shown to you. Moses did not have the right to create his own architectural design for the tabernacle. He had to make it and the manner God showed him in the vision. Now, if you've ever seen a reconstruction of the tabernacle, you, you have to know the tabernacle was not the prettiest thing in the wilderness. It wasn't. <clears throat> now, we have badgers out here, and most people don't think that badger skins are that beautiful. But badger skins were one of the coverings on top of the tabernacle. Around the outside, there were these linen curtains that were, oh, maybe about this tall or so. They went all, all around the, the different sides. And on the east side, there was a, a gate where the priest went in and the priest came out. And there were basically two rooms in the tabernacle. But if you were standing off in a distance and you were looking at the tabernacle, there really wouldn't be a whole lot about it that would be so attractive. And that's why it was a picture of Christ. Isaiah 53 which speaks of Jesus as the suffering servant. They said there was nothing, no kind of beauty about him that you would desire him. But yet this is the Savior that came to die for us. Moses could not create his own building plans for the tabernacle. And we as Christians have to build our Christian lives on the basis of what the Bible says. You can't just be the kind of Christian you want to be. You have to be the kind of Christian the Bible teaches you to be. You can't create your, you can't become your own prototype for what you want Christianity to become. He has a pattern. The pattern is his son. His son sits at his right hand and God says, this is the only thing that pleases me. We can come up with all kinds of plans and designs of what we think we should do and how we can make Christianity better and more relevant to society. But the bottom line is we're going to have a pattern and an image that doesn't resemble anything that God put in the word. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we actually want? He said in verse 5, see that you make all things according to the pattern. So what are some things in the early church that should be existent in the church of all ages? We'll start with something very basic. 
a belief in the scriptures as the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. The early disciples believed that Genesis through Malachi was God's word. Jesus, you can go through the gospel. Jesus quoted the Old Testament on no less than 30 different occasions. He did a lot more, but I'm just saying no less than 30. And he believed that Jonah was real. He believed that marriage, going back to Adam and Eve, so that means he believed in Genesis. He believed that Abraham was the patriarch. That means he believed in Genesis. According to Matthew 24, Jesus believed that the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel was true, so he believed in the prophets. He believed in the story of Noah. He quotes that. He believed in the story of Lot because he said, remember Lot's wife. We can go through this all night long. So Jesus believed in the scripture. And if the disciples also believed in the scripture, that is a pattern that we should maintain in the church today. So when you hear somebody that says, you know, I just think we have to question some of the things written in the Bible because they're probably legendary and some of them didn't happen. Well, then if, if Jesus quoted them and Jesus believed in them and you call yourself a Christian, which is to be like Christ, then you have to ask yourself, who are you patterning yourself after? It's a, it's a very disciplined life that we have. So the, the infallible word is important. What else should we have in the church that goes on in every generation? The proclamation of the gospel. Of course, we need to know what the gospel is, but you have to be proclaimed. The good news of Jesus means different things to a whole lot of people. But if you look at the 19 different sermons and addresses in the book of Acts, it becomes very clear what the gospel is. They're talking about how Jesus came and sacrificed his life, life on the cross, how he was betrayed, how he was raised from the dead, how he ascended on high, how he's the judge and one day he's coming back. That was the good news that the suffering Savior came to bear our sins and they tell it over and over again in Peter's sermons and in Paul's sermons. So if somebody tells you the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we should just all just simply just believe in the brotherhood of man. Well, the brotherhood of man is a fine idea. However, the, the brotherhood of man has to recognize that we are all sinners and that brotherhood needs salvation from sin. So anybody that says, OK, we we shouldn't dwell on the negative. Let's not talk about Jesus death. Because if you talk about that, you're going to offend people and, you know, you're going to make people feel bad about the fact that you're saying they're sinners and they need deliverance. I mean, well, I mean, if you think Paul and Peter and Jesus meant all of those things as compliments, you ought to read that again. Yeah, the whole point of the story of the gospel is to cause people who hear it to think of themselves as alienated from God. And the only way I can be reconciled is to accept the truth of Jesus' death on my behalf. There's no other way around that. Well, in Hebrews 8, looking at verse 6, we could go on and on with that, but we'll move to something else. Verse 6 says of Jesus, now he has a more excellent ministry, mediator of a better covenant. You do not need anybody to help you get to God. You can go directly to God yourself. And this goes back to what I was saying about the young lady who was talking about growing up overseas. There's one mediator, and that's Jesus. And he is the one who has dealt with our sins and has given us access to God. And the Bible says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Jesus has a more excellent ministry now because he's eternal. He's no longer physically here in the flesh, but he's at the right hand of the Father. Where he was here in the flesh, 
He could only talk to a handful of people at one time, but where he's at the right hand of the Father as God in a, in a spiritual body, he can hear everybody from around the world talking to him. It's a more excellent ministry. And also because when he cried on the cross, he said it is finished. The whole redemptive process is done. So he's not redeeming anyone anymore. His ministry is excellent now because he is a mediator. He's an intercessor at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one that makes it possible for us to access the kingdom of God on the basis of his shed blood. And just a drop of his blood is powerful. It means everything to us. Scripture says we have a better covenant established on better promises. Well, if it's a better covenant, that means that the older covenant under the Old Testament is not as good as the one that we have now. We'll say something about that as we go down in other verses. But better promises. The scripture says at the end of chapter 11, going into 12 in Hebrews, it talks about how all of these people desired, you know, to see the promised land, but never got to the promised land. Talking about Abraham and folks like that. But, but they wanted the promises. But they hoped for them. They, they didn't actually receive them as we have. The, the believer today on this side of the cross has faith in what Jesus did in his sacrifice. Before Jesus died, everybody was expectant and hopeful. So in the Old Testament, people had hope. They were saved by hope. They were saved on the basis of the lamb that was sacrificed. They knew there was a Messiah coming. They knew there was a super person coming that was going to do something great because the Lord prophesied in one generation after another that he's coming. He told Moses, he said, they won't listen to you, but there's a prophet coming after you. They'll listen to him. He told uh, Abraham even before then, he said, the scepter won't depart from the the tribe of Judah. He told David that your seed is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. So every generation was hearing this. But they, they hoped for something that was going to take place in the future. We have faith for what has already occurred. That's what makes us different. Our covenant is better because we have better promises that are more secure because of what Christ has done for us at Calvary. And verse 7 amplifies that by saying, if the first covenant had been good, there wouldn't have been a need for a second one. The reason we have a New Testament is because the Old Testament was not sufficient in the way that God wanted it. And you, you have to remember, Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means it, it was always God's intention for Jesus to come into the world and take away the sins of the world. Everything else was tentative, probationary, temporary. It was never supposed to be eternal. But Christ's coming was something that was in the mind of God from the foundation of the world. God knew when Adam and Eve sinned that his son would have to come into the world to rectify everything that had fallen apart. And there's no need for us to say, oh, I wish I had been in the garden rather than Adam and Eve. No, don't say that. You'd have fallen faster than they did. <laughs> I mean, the, the devil would have said to you or to me, come on over here to this tree. We would have ate of the wrong tree too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so verse 8 then, he says, finding fault with them, with them, talking about the Israelites, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
The reason two houses are mentioned, you will remember that when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took over. Rehoboam's problem was he did not keep his father's advisors on staff. He fired all of them, and the scripture says that he took to himself young men who didn't know anything. And the scripture said it divided the whole kingdom. And from that division, we had the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when you read the Kings and the Chronicles, one of the things you'll notice is that under the division, the nation of Israel never had one righteous king, never had one. All of them were wicked and idolaters. And the nation of Judah, they had some righteous kings and they had some unrighteous kings. Yeah, it's an it's amazing thing to think. So the Lord said he found fault. And he says in verse nine, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they didn't continue in my covenant. I regarded them not, says the Lord. God gives a covenant or an agreement or a treatise, but it's a two sided thing. God makes a promise on this side. You make promises on this side. God says, if you do these things, I'll bless you. But the children of Israel had a habit of entering into agreements that they didn't keep. Isn't that bad? If somebody makes promises and they don't keep their promises? The Bible says don't make rash vows. Don't use your mouth to promise people you're going to do things and then don't do them, the scripture teaches. However, the Bible does say if you do make a vow, you swear to your hurt. That means you go out of your way to make sure you keep your vow. If you pledge you're going to do something for somebody, if, if you've given them your word, it doesn't matter if it's going to break your family's heart that you're not going to be able to do this or be with them. If you gave somebody your word that you're going to do it, the Bible says honor your word. Be a person of your word. That's important to know. Children of Israel weren't like that. They'd make a promise and then they'd go back on it. Now, people do this every day. I'm sure I've done it in the past, too. You go to a hospital, <clears throat> and there's a, 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 a spouse that's ill or somebody passing through a difficult time. And if you go out in the hallways on certain floors, you'll just see people walking up and down the hallway. And, and what, what, what some of them are doing are trying to make deals with God. In their heart. Father, I, I promise you if, if, if you, if you heal him or her, God, they'll never open the doors of the church except I'm there early. I'll be there. God, I'll be there. Father, I promise you there'll never be a time where I'll forsake giving my tithes. Lord, I, I, I'll stop cussing. I'm telling you, God, I'll stop cussing. I'll be nice. I'll do things for my wife, for my husband. They've been wanting me to do this. Lord, if you just help them, I'll, I will do this and do this and that. Now, the amazing thing about it is God already knows we're lying anyhow. And he knows when we're telling the truth. But this goes on every day. And, and once everything works out, then we're like, oh, this is wonderful. So we start off fulfilling our obligations. And sometimes we make it a month, two months, three months. We're doing well. Then you know what happens? We slack off. That's what the children of Israel did. As long as a certain judge was alive, they walked with God. But when their favorite pastor died, then they just started going back after idols again. I hope that's never the case with you. I hope that you have never had 
uh, a pastor or a preacher that you regarded so highly that when they departed, you just backslid and just said, I can't walk with God if, if I can't have that person there to, to preach to me. I have met people who've done that. I've met people who said, well, I got close to a pastor in their family, but after three years or four years or five years, they left, and I just decided I'm not going back to church and allow my heart to be torn asunder again. Well, that, that's the wrong perspective to have because it should be a love for God, not just a love for a person, you see. A change of geography for a preacher should never change the affection in your heart that you have for God. Because people come, people go every, every day. These things happen. Well, look at verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He said, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, in the Old Testament, you say, well, didn't he, didn't he have his laws and, th and thoughts in their mind? Well, to a degree. Moses went to the top of the mountain, received the tablets of stone. God wrote with his finger in stone. And he brought it down. He communicated that word to them. Joshua chapter 1 says, meditate upon the word. So sure, they had the word in them. But it's a bit different than what happens under the new covenant when the spirit of God comes and he places a spiritual seal upon us, Ephesians chapter 1. And when the Lord engraves his word upon our hearts and in our minds, we're born again. It's a totally different thing. We're regenerated. We're changed into the image of God in the likeness of the Lord. We're, giving a, we're given a new nature so that we become like God. So surely he writes his thoughts in our mind and his thoughts in our heart because he's given us a new nature. The scripture says, that when we become born again, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And he says in verse 11, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So there's coming a point in time where we won't even need to teach the scripture. Because there'll be a, a, a time where the glory of God will so fill the earth that from the youngest to the oldest, Everybody will know who God is. That's, that's, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. That'll be great when that happens during the millennium, I'm sure, in, in Revelation, that 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where everybody knew God? Mm -hmm. To have a home where everybody knew God from the youngest to the oldest, and you wouldn't have to worry about trying to help people know God because everybody knows God. That would be beautiful. The closest we can get to that is to create an environment where the word of God is taught in such a way that people will believe the truth of scriptures and hold to the truth of scripture. So we say, know the Lord. Hosea said people perish because of a lack of knowledge. So men and women who don't know God, it's not that they're dying eternally. They're dying every day because they don't know God. Death is at work in their mind. Death is at work in their body. We make one bad decision after another. Then we have to live in the present with the bad decisions of the past. And then our future, our future is affected by present bad decisions. And so we enter into the future in trouble because 
We don't know God. If we know God, the scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So having a fear of God and getting to know God, that causes wisdom to be activated inside a person. So you start thinking differently, making different decisions because of God. And he says, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Merciful. That's a, that's a big word. The Bible says the Lord's mercies are new every morning. We all believe in mercy. We all believe in forgiveness, especially when we're the ones that need it. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you're in a situation where you need mercy or forgiveness, you're all for sermons on mercy and forgiveness. But if there's unrighteousness in someone else and you don't particularly like it, Sometimes you don't always want to extend mercy. Well, God, thank the Lord, he, 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 he's very merciful. and He's compassionate. You remember it says in the Gospels, Jesus had compassion on the multitude when he saw them. We should be that way. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. If you sin, then the scripture says a righteous man falls seven times and then he gets back up again. But you might feel sometimes like somebody's always tripping you. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but God still, he still forgives you if, if you do fall. And the Bible says, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, God is the only one who's able to do that. Because there, there are no humans that can hit the delete button and forget every bad thing you've done. We, we, have, we have one special talent. I know one special talent that, that humans have, and that is we are able to recall from the past what people have done that we don't like. And it comes out in arguments often. Yeah. Let a couple of people get in. I remember you did so-and-so when I was 11 years old. You still thinking about that now? Yeah. The Lord said, I will remember your iniquities no more. And we all have things in our past that is under the blood that we really don't want anybody to talk about. That, that's the thing that's so tricky about high school reunions. Yeah. Now, next year, I've got my 30th one. And the letters are already going to my mom's house. And she was telling me the other day, I see so-and-so. From your class is sending this stuff, and, and you got some personal letters coming here. They wanting to know, are you coming back for the reunion? I said, oh, I don't care anything about all of that. I don't see that. Well, well, the thing is, I know, just like you know, if you've gone to any of your reunions, as soon as you see people from your past, you immediately have memories. You, you, you see the things that you did that you certainly don't want anybody to know about. And then you see the happy times that you have. That's why most high school reunions that I have seen people go to, if, if the spouse isn't from that area, they leave that spouse at home. They do not want that spouse to hear all of them stories about how bad. Don't you, let me tell you this. See, I remember some of my friends when I first brought Tiffany home to Cleveland. Some of them girls that I knew in high school, once they knew Tiffany was home, they came over there and said, honey, let me tell you. I said, no, I think that'd be enough of that. You can, you can leave now. <laughs> you can leave. <laughs> For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember 
no more. Now, one of the, the things in pastoring that's so tricky is in traveling, very often I, I hear about problems that are going on in a church, and then I have to be able to get up and still preach in that church without them people thinking I'm talking about them sometimes. And then as a pastor, you, you enter into and engage in, in so many close encounters with people and getting to know people's private lives and, and things like that through the years, you know, all the years we've been out here getting to know people. And, and to be able to, to, to get up and teach the Bible without people thinking you're picking on them. Folks, that takes a whole lot of wisdom. A lot of wisdom. When, when folks come to the house of God, they're struggling enough with their own failures and faults. The last thing they need is a preacher taking their failures and faults and just throwing them in their face trying to make everybody feel bad. But the word of God, if ministered properly, is always going to do a work of grace that provides healing for the brokenhearted. So the good thing about me is I've got, uh, I've got a problem with short-term memory anyhow. So my, my wife would tell you that she'd tell me stuff, and I just immediately, didn't I tell you? I said, look, I can't remember what you told me a couple of days ago. I can remember a story from 30 years ago or 20 years ago. I can't remember what is, what's important, it seems like. Notice verse 13, the last one. He says, And that he saith, A new covenant he hath made, the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish and pass, or vanish and pass away. So it's God that basically took the old covenant and put it in a condition where it needed to be replaced. It's not something we woke up one day and said, you know what, we don't need the old covenant anymore. Paul says in the book of Romans, the law was good. So that, that wasn't the issue. But the law was not as effective as the new covenant. When Jesus says at the, at the Lord's Supper, when he says, take this bread, this is my body broken for you. Take this cup, this is my New Testament in the blood. He's offering them something that is greater than anything they've known before. Because he's becoming the Passover. It's not, it's not about them eating bread. It's not about them dwelling in uh, tents, it's no longer about them trying to remember putting blood on the doorposts of their homes in order for the death angel to pass over. It's now about them thinking of the death of Jesus on the cross and how that judgment passes over them now because of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. That's what it's about now. And just like an old garment, when it gets old, you can try and patch it up if you want to, but if it's, it's really bad and it's fraying, and it's just falling apart. Every little thread that you pull on, you can't even repair it. You have to just get rid of it. And that's what he's saying about the Old Testament. It had to be replaced. And this is why, as it waxed old, in the fullness of times, according to Galatians 4 and 4, Jesus came to offer himself as our sacrifice and to institute a new covenant. It's a powerful thing. And because of this, you do not have to practice ancient forms of Judaism. Man, we don't have to be circumcised. The last verse of Romans chapter 2 says we're all circumcised in our heart. Ladies in the Old Testament, women couldn't be priests. The 
Revelation chapter 1 says we all been made kings and priests unto God. In the Old Testament and in the temple, if somebody had a physical infirmity, blind, hunchback, they couldn't go into the tabernacle or in the temple precincts. But now, we can all boldly come on the basis of the blood because it's not about physical characteristics. There's a revival taking place in America now with people trying to reinstitute the dietary laws of the ancient Jews, trying to teach Christians not to eat pork and all of these things. And they say, well, you know, the Bible teaches they couldn't eat pork because the pork wasn't healthy and all of that. And I say, well, the Bible does tell them they couldn't eat pork, but it doesn't tell you why they couldn't eat pork. It never one time says that pork was healthy or it's going to give them bad cholesterol. He just told them they couldn't eat it, along with shrimp and other things. However, Paul says in Thessalonians, all meats are to be received with thanksgiving when they are, are eaten as their uh, 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 person is grateful to God and offering to God a sacrifice of prayer. And remember the vision that Peter had? Peter had the vision with the, the uh, I think it was like a, a blanket or something there, tablecloth with all the different foods on there that he wasn't supposed to eat. And then the Lord said to him, don't you call defiled or unclean what I have cleansed. So some people who make the decision that they're not going to eat a BLT sandwich because they can't eat bacon, I say just pass it all on over here. That person that says, I'm not eating any baby back ribs, I say bring it all over here. I'll, I'll take care of all of that for you. If your conscience won't allow you to eat that, I'm not going to trip you up and cause you to end up in sin. You just bring it right over here, and I guarantee you I'm going to eat it and pass away and go to heaven. Yeah, I'm going to be with the Lord. So, folks, what Jesus has provided for us is important. Don't let anybody march you backwards. You, you do not have to burn incense when you pray. You do not have to burn a candle. You don't have to have an image or a picture of Jesus in front of you when you pray. You don't have to just be down on your knees when you pray. You don't have to be in a, in a church between pews. You don't have to be in an altar. In order to reach God, the only thing you need is faith in him and knowledge that the blood of Jesus is what gives you access to God. And God stands there waiting, saying, come on, I've been waiting on you all day long. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that your son is the true high priest. And Lord, how can we ever do better than what he did for us on the cross? We know we can't. But God, we've all tried a thousand different ways to better ourselves apart from your grace and your power and the anointing and the Holy Spirit. Father, forgive us for every time we have tried to climb up into your presence Another way. Even Jesus said in John 10, if somebody tries it, they'll be treated like they're thieves. But God, we are so grateful that your mercies are new every morning. That even though we fail, you continue to bless us. We thank you that you allow us to fill our minds with your thoughts. That we can bring every thought captive. You've given us the ability to think on things that are pure and holy and right. We thank you that your son died on the cross to secure for us 
redemption from sin, but also to bear our infirmities, as Isaiah 53 said. And on the basis of that, even as Matthew 8, 17 says, Lord, we can believe that by the stripes of Jesus, even in the worst of illnesses and infirmities, we're made whole. Thank you for that, God. Nobody else could have ever supplied a redemption this great. So we honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, amen.